He's coming for us, and he's going to take everything that's wrong, and he's going to make it right. And so that brings me immense comfort. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. You'll find that in the latter part of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And, uh, and I believe, uh, so I'm preaching from the ESV Bible is kind of what we're going to be preaching from. And if you uh, want to follow along in a Bible, uh, we had someone uh, make a generous donation to purchase uh, English Standard uh, Version Bibles. And so I believe, Dennis, are they in the pews? The ESV Bibles? Oh, okay. Well, they, they will be in the pews next week, and so we have them um, ordered. They're here, and uh, we'll distribute those so that you can, if you um, have trouble following along in your translation, you will have them um, in front of you. So we are on the second week um, talking about authenticity, and, and the title of my sermon this morning is Authentic because of the new covenant. And if you're remotely familiar with the book of Hebrews, uh, you know that, um, that the new covenant really is kind of a focal point uh, in this particular book by the author of Hebrews. And, uh, and I can't help when I read the book of Hebrews to think about the, uh, the tired old cliche, the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, if you've heard that cliche, uh, it's usually um, put in, a, uh, in the context of telling someone, it ain't better. Uh, wh- whatever you're thinking, it's not better. Uh, wherever you think you're going, it's not better. If you think you're going to get a new job, it's not better than your current job probably. If you're going to switch degrees, maybe it's not going to be that much better. New neighborhood, new beginning, new start, whatever. Uh, and oftentimes when we... Um, we kind of get in our mind that the grass is greener on the other side. When we do this, we end up realizing once we get to that other side that we've been aiming for, if you will, um, that really it's it's more of a disappointment, right? Our happiness can't be uh, hung on the fact that the grass is or isn't greener on the other side. The change oftentimes, maybe it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't bring us that that peace or that contentment or that joy uh, that we thought a fresh start Uh, would bring us. And this morning, I want to spend time talking about the good life, is what I'm going to call it. Uh, And the expression, the grass is greener on the other side, that really is true of Jesus Christ, right? That really is true of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, it perhaps showcases this more clearly uh, than, than maybe any other book in the New Testament, it was actually the aim of the author of Hebrews. The, his goal was to demonstrate the superiority, if you will, of the new covenant over and beyond the old covenant. In the old covenant, grace was promised. And we see that time and time again. We see these, these little micro covenants, if you will, in the Old Testament that should be lifting our thoughts toward this covenant of grace that God has promised to give to his people. And then as we get more and more into our New Testament, we realize that this covenant of grace that was promised all throughout the Old Testament from the time that, that Jesus told Eve and the serpent that one day he was sending somebody that would crush the head of the serpent, the first time we see the gospel preached, we see, in fact, that Jesus came. He was this offspring that crushed the head of the serpent. And so in the new covenant, we see this, this, this covenant of grace that was promised in the Old Testament. We see it actually concluded in the New Testament. We see it fulfilled. We see it come to fruition. It was accomplished. Salvific grace was administered 
In other words, Jesus, he's better than all those earthly sacrifices and all those Old Testament covenants that we see. He really is better. Listen how the author of Hebrews builds this case just in chapter 10. And I'm just going to read a few select verses there before I get to our main focal point this morning. But, but listen to the author of Hebrews build this case in regards to how much better Jesus is. He says in, in verse 4, he says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then on down in verse 10, we see him say, And by that will, speaking of the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus, what? Once for all. Once for all. And then verses 11 through 14, if you look on down, it says, And every priest, speaking of those priests prior to the new covenant, every, all these priests, they stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and I love this part, he sat down. And he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 110.1. For by a single offering, one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then down in verse 18, where there is the forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Now the, the author of Hebrews here, he's telling a struggling, discouraged congregation, this Hebraic church, that Christ is superior. He's superior. Christ is worth it. He's worth their perseverance. And it's been said that you can't appreciate the book of Hebrews without an understanding of the book of Leviticus. If you've ever wondered why the book of Leviticus is there, and you're like, man, why should I persevere through, through the tediousness of this book? Uh, a good just read-through of the book of Leviticus helps us to understand the New Testament better. It helps us understand really what Christ has accomplished. All this tedious and gruesome sacrifice that we read about in the Old Testament that was made to, to temporarily cleanse the people of God pointed to the Lamb. right? Pointed to the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, that Lamb of God that, that we just finished singing about, whose sacrifice once and for all removed the stain and the guilt of our sin. Christ, he's, he's superior. Christ is superior. The grass, when we're speaking about Jesus Christ, the grass really is greener on the other side. And, 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 and as Christians, when we herald the good news of the gospel, that's what we're telling people. We're saying that what we have is better than what you have. What we have is better than what you have. What you have is withering and dying, and what we have is, is evergreen. It's evergreen. And this morning, maybe some of you have lost focus on this good life, and, and you're settling for those things that, that, that are going to become scorched at the Lord's return. And maybe some of you in this room have, have never even enjoyed the, the, the green pastures right, in the still waters that, that our gentle, kind shepherd 
leads us to. And so we're going to look this morning at, at, at what the good life looks like, and, and we're going to see that, that it brings a, a quietness to our souls, those things that, that, that help clear our consciences. And so the second week of authenticity, what I'm doing is I'm asking the question, what is an authentic, blood-bought Christian concerned about? What is an authentic, blood-bought Christian concerned about? What occupies her or his thoughts? What does their life look like? And so together, let's read the focal point of the sermon, just the, the, the text that I kind of want to hone in on, and then I'm going to pray and just make some observations. And so what we're going to look at is verses 19 to 25 in Hebrews chapter 10. The, Hebraic, the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I love this, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's go and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you who promised are faithful, and you don't change. Lord, you stay the same no matter where we are in life. And because you don't change, we can have hope. We can have hope in our salvation. We can have hope that the Holy Spirit has sealed our inheritance. And so, Lord, this morning, remind us of what the good life looks like. Lord, remind us that the things that we tend to tell ourselves, God, our own, when our flesh, the old man, when he begins to speak up, Lord, that those are lies, that's not the good life, God. And, and God, what this unbelieving world, Lord, tends to tell us, God, that we need in order to be happy and joyful, God, help us not to lose sight that those are lies, God, that, that we are to have this singular focus, and that singular focus is to bring honor and glory to your name, and it's our joy to do that. It's our joy. So help us to, to understand your word this morning, to see your word clearly, God. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, the first thing that I want you to see is an authentic Christian draws near to God because of the blood of Jesus. An authentic Christian draws near to God because of the blood of Jesus. Authentic Christians aren't people that are far from the Lord. Authentic Christians are people that are brought near. And we see this in verses 19 through 22 there. We have this confidence that we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And Christians, authentic Christians, they're, they, they're dedicated to that. 
They're dedicated to drawing near to God and, and not, not dedicated to drawing near to God out of some religious obligation and not because that they're told to do so or we think that that's what we're supposed to do, but because the holy God of the universe allows us to have an audience with him. He allows us to have an audience with him. We have an opportunity to enjoy the presence of our king. Isn't that incredible? Before Judaism passed away, and, and the majority of the, the audience that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to, they're Messianic Jews, okay? And so, so they had spent much time in Judaism, and they're coming out to that because they're confessing that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah that's been promised, okay? And so that's what their confession is being. But before Judaism was passing away, there was this, there was this place, there was this temple, and in this temple, there was this, this, this section in the temple that was called if you've been in church life for any length of time, you've heard of it. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, we would find the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where God's presence dwelled. And the high priest on Yom Kippur uh, could enter into the Holy of Holies. And before they did so, they had to make atonement for their own sins through the sacrifice of animals before they could even do anything on behalf of of the rest of God's people. And this was this detailed, again, if you, if you begin to read, especially through the first five books of the Old Testament, you realize this is a very tedious, time-consuming, um, gruesome, gory, bloody process. It is brutal. Sometimes I think, man, I don't... Could I, could I have survived in that culture? We're talking about a culture where, man, when the Ark of the Covenant was being transported and it began to tip and one of David's men touch it, what does he do? He dies. He falls down dead. This unrelenting holiness of God that's masked by this really, really, really thick curtain that a sinful priest one day a year could enter in if he made atonement through the sacrifice of animals for himself and he dare not enter otherwise. And when we read that gruesome, gory process, our minds should be lifted, lifted to the day where this process becomes obsolete, should be lifted to the day where there is this one sacrifice, the sacrifice of this lamb, this spotless, perfect lamb, the lamb of God. And when Christ died, he made an atonement once and for all for our sin. Matthew 27, verse 51 says, when Christ did die, when he, when he, when he died, he declared it is finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. If you were to look back in Hebrews, in Hebrews verse uh, ten twenty, there by the new and new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. There tends to be some holy of holy language going on there. But when Jesus died, this place that masked the holiness of our God. Holiness that when we read in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets this vision of the throne room of God, 
and he sees these unfallen angelic creatures called seraphim saying in Trinitarian formula, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. He noticed that not even this seraphim, not, not even these unfallen angelic creatures could gaze upon the glory of God. And as he drew, as he drew near, he recognized more and more his uncleanliness and the uncleanliness of the people that he dwelt among. That's our holy God. And it says that when Christ died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Right? Jesus, he's our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus made it possible for us to enter the holy of holies. And I don't know a lot of times if we, give, if we apply our minds to meditating on that a whole lot or thinking about that, but Jesus made it possible for us to dwell in the Holy of Holies, to enter the Holy of Holies. And in fact, because of Christ's sacrifice, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Our bodies become this temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no physical place that we need to go in order to commune with God. And we don't need some sinful, fallen priest to go on our behalf to God. We don't need this building that we're sitting in to draw near to the Lord. Jesus Christ, our high priest, granted us the ability to draw near to God whenever and wherever. So encouraging to me. I just think about that for a moment. The sacrifice of Jesus, it means that we have intimate communion with our holy, unapproachable God. In Christ, we, we approach God. In Christ, we approach God. We can draw near to him. In Christ, God becomes approachable, not because God changed, but because in Christ, we're changed. And not because of anything special in us, but because of Christ's perfect character and works. That when God looks at us, when he looks at Joey, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sinfulness and my brokenness because I am sinful and broken but he sees the perfect blood of Christ Jesus. And because of that, I can have confidence to draw near to him. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you happy to draw near to God? Are you happy to draw near to God? I've been reflecting on this um, this week a lot. But those times where I'm communing with the Lord, is that the delight of my life? Speaking to him in prayer, do you enjoy that? Confessing your sins, your worries, your anxieties, casting them upon the Lord. Does that bring you pleasure? Pouring over the words that he wrote to you and to me so that you may know him and hear from him. Is there pleasure found there for you? Is it your delight? Is it your privilege? Do you desire to draw near? Do you find rest and peace, and happiness when your soul spends dedicated time with the Lord? Do you realize and feel the weight of this precious gift of fellowship? Or is drawing near to God, is it dull for you? Does it feel like a hassle? Does it feel like a checkbox? Would you rather spend time with someone else or doing something else? Authentic Christians draw near to God, and it's their, it's their joy to draw near to the Lord. Secondly, 
An authentic Christian aims to increase their assurance of faith. Aims to increase their assurance of faith. That's verses 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Can I confess something to you? There's, there's times where I don't feel saved. There's times where I doubt my salvation. And can I just say in this certain passage of Scripture, my goodness, the quality of my faith is not what my eternal security is hinged upon. It says that it's hinged upon our hearts being sprinkled clean, our bodies being washed with pure water, our confession that Jesus is our high priest who once and for all made an atonement for sin. But there's times in my life that I've found that there are things that, that, that are behind me um, being able to have an assurance of faith. There, there, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that causes me to doubt and to question. And, and I want to give you just a few that I found in my own life to be the culprit. First is this, unconfessed sin. Right? David experienced this after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he had her husband killed. And in Psalm 32, the first five verses, I want to ask you to turn there, but uh, we may have it on the screen, I think. It, David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and, who, and, who, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. And then get this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I say I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David felt in this unconfessed state that it felt as if his bones were wasting away. It felt as if his strength was dried up until he confessed his sin to God. And so hidden, unconfessed, unrepentant sin can be the thing in your life that prevents you from having the assurance of faith. It clouds the finished work of Christ in your life. The second thing that, that has caused me to doubt is, is suffering. Suffering has decreased my assurance of faith at times. That's what those in, in the, the Hebraic church are experiencing. They, they were suffering immensely at the hands of non-Messianic Jews. Think about that. Their friends their family, the temples that they used to worship at, the people there were not confessing that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And now we have these Jewish people that are saying, no, Jesus really is the Messiah, and he's captured our hearts. And now they're being shunned. Now, now they're, they're losing their jobs. Now they can no longer go to the temples that they used to go to. Now they're being shunned by family and friends. Some of them are being beaten. Just various persecutions, lots of suffering that is causing this Hebraic church the temptation to maybe we should go back to Judaism because life would be a bit easier if we did. That's one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews writes this letter to them. He's saying, persevere. Christ really is worth it. 
And sometimes our suffering this side of eternity can cloud our affections for the Lord. It can cloud our our desire and our motivation and our joy and our happiness to continue on this road that God has declared is good. So suffering can cause us doubts. Another thing that causes me doubts is a, a lack of those times where I'm not consistent in my fellowship with God. When I'm not consistent in my fellowship with God, my affections for the Lord decrease tremendously. I become a very miserable, depressed person when this happens. Right? Those times that I neglect my time with the Lord, those times that I don't enjoy His presence or speak to Him or give my, myself this opportunity to hear from His Word, I'm extremely miserable. And I've come to think of that almost as this gift from God. Me being miserable drives me back to him, right? Even Peter says, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? So here here are some remedies that I want to give you that, that have helped me in my own life to increase my assurance of faith. First is this, mortify your flesh. In other words, in regards to unconfessed, unrepentant sin, we need to put our sinful desires to death. We need to crucify them. They they were, in fact, crucified with Christ, right? And sin deprives us from comfort. It deprives us from joy. And if you find yourself in this constant turmoil because you identify with the language of David who had this unconfessed sin, repent and look to Jesus Christ. Repent and look to Jesus Christ. Theologian John Owen, he said this, every unmortified sin, in other words, every unconfessed, unrepented sin will certainly do two things. Number one, it will weaken the vitality of your soul. And number two, it will darken your soul and deprive it of comfort and joy. And maybe that's where some of you are right now. You don't have assurance of faith because... You need to feast on Christ and allow your feasting on Christ to drive you toward confession and repentance. Secondly, if suffering is decreasing your assurance of faith, remember, God didn't spare his only son from suffering, right? He didn't spare his only son from suffering. Jesus Christ suffered and Jesus Christ endured. I think in in the latter part of Hebrews, we, we hear about that. And I think I've said it from the pulpit before, but the author of Hebrews, one of the ways he comforts the suffering church is by telling them Jesus suffered and endured. He said, bear the reproach that Christ endured. Go outside the camp as he was. He was treated as an outsider. He was treated as an outcast. He was treated like a leper, yet he endured. And man, we enjoy such rich benefits because of his faithfulness. And not only has he provided for us access to our holy God, but the Holy Spirit lives in us and we can model him. We can suffer and endure because Christ suffered and endured. So look to Christ. Look to the suffering servant. A man of sorrows. And third, if you find that you have this consistent lack of fellowship with the Lord, you need to commune with God regularly. You're always going to be too busy. The question you need to ask yourself is, what are the the priorities of my heart? We make time for the things that we love. 
right? We make time for the things that we love. And, and if the Lord is the delight of your soul, speak to him, read his word, create spaces to draw near to the Lord. So an authentic Christian is able to draw near to God because of the blood of Jesus. An authentic Christian seeks to have her or his assurance of faith increased. So believer, pursue your assurance of faith. You pursue it by pursuing Christ Jesus. Third, an authentic Christian has a tender consideration and concern for others. And perhaps this is one of uh, the characteristics that Christians don't, aren't known for, right? Sometimes we're, we're known for being judgmental. Sometimes we're known for being cold. Sometimes we're known for being people that aren't accessible or are unapproachable. But authentic Christians are others-focused. And most of the time when I counsel people, um, not all the time, but sometimes, uh, this can be a tremendous blind spot uh, in, the, in the lives of people. Sometimes we're so focused on ourselves that, that we don't create space or leave room to be concerned about other people. We had a staff retreat this week, uh, which is a fancy way of saying we spend a lot of time in meetings. Uh, <clears throat> and then I got in, we got invited to play top golf, and I am extremely uh, unathletic, and so that was embarrassing. But um, we had staff retreat this week, and one of our leaders here at Coastal, uh, Kevin Smith, uh, challenged us, uh, the group that I was in, to, to leave white space in our calendars for other people, for, for interruptions of other people. Uh, and that was convicting for me to hear, and it got me asking myself the question, do I organize my calendar in a way that makes space for me to serve other people? Do I make time in my calendar for that? Do I make time in my calendar for the last-minute needs of people, to be there for people? Does my mind and my calendar have time for those in which Christ died for? So are you making time for people? Are you making time for, for the people in your home? Are you making time for the people in this church? Are you making time for your unbelieving neighbors and friends? An authentic Christian has this tender consideration and concern for others, understanding that, that we're called not just to relieve and, 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 or help alleviate physical sufferings, but to help alleviate the, the, the biggest suffering of all, which is, will be eternal suffering for those who die that aren't in Christ Jesus. And so, authentic Christians have a tender consideration and concern. Fourth, this tender consideration and concern and us helps to motivate others to love and serve people. It should be contagious if we're doing it the right way in our lives, really. The author of Hebrews says, stir one another up to love and good works. And so are you invested enough in this local church that you're motivating those around you to persevere in the work that the Lord's left for us? Right? Are you motivated in the work Christ left for us? Right? He really does have a great plan for your life. His great plan for your life is that you die to yourself and your selfish desires so you can expand his kingdom and will on earth as it is in heaven. That is God's great plan for our lives. There's a reason why when we became Christians, when, when the gospel captivated our hearts, that we didn't just die instantly and go to be with the Lord. The reason why is because God's plan for each and every believer here is to declare the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. 
We're asking people now in redemptive history to confess Jesus as Lord, to bow a knee to his kingship because one day they're going to do it. And we want them to do it now. We want them to do it now. And, and, and so this is God's plan for our life. This is the ultimate way that we love and serve people. And, and believe it or not, when we do it joyfully, it's the joy of others to come and play a part with us. I even think about this, when we lovingly serve other people, not, again, not just in the physical needs, but in the, the spiritual needs, their greatest need, which is Christ Jesus, when we call them to repent, I've heard one pastor put it this way, when we call a man to repent, we call him to his joy. We're calling him to his joy. It's your joy to turn from worthless idols and to gaze upon Christ Jesus. And so when we joyfully serve others, this becomes contagious in our local church because joy is contagious. It's our joy to announce the lordship of Jesus. And we start by do, announcing it in every aspect of our lives. We start by even just being joyful Christians as a motivator, right? Just smiling. So an authentic Christian is a motivator is a motivator for other people to love and to serve. And, and we motivate because, man, it's our joy to fulfill this mission that Christ inaugurated and Christ left for us to do. And he will return when it's complete. Fifth, an authentic Christian is committed to the local church. That's the first part of verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This, this letter was written to a specific local church where believers, uh, believers gather. It's not, it's not an unidentified universal church. It's a specific local church. And the author of Hebrews, if you were to read through the book, you would find out that he, he knew his congregation. He knew very well what this church <clears throat> excuse me, was struggling with what was going on in their lives. And he, he knew them well enough to write about the, uh, the particulars they struggled with, the persecutions they endured, the temptations that they faced, the poverty that they suffered. And, and he was able to write to them in a way that encouraged them to keep the faith, to, to cling fast to the, the gospel that was delivered once and for all to them. So we meet together as a local church here together corporately to primarily glorify God. And, and one of the ways that we glorify God and, and remind one another to persevere in this faith that's very old is we warn each other of sin's deceitfulness. That's in the book of Hebrews. He talks about that. Another way is that we pray for each other. We pray for each other's particular needs. On the Connect card that you have, if you write prayer requests down, they really do get prayed for. On Sunday nights, we are dedicating a time together where we can pray not just for missions that we're involved with and other local churches in this area, but we pray for needs in this body as well. So we pray for each other. We pray for particular needs. We link arms together. As we suffer, no one should have to suffer in isolation. No one should have to suffer in isolation. We link arms together, and as we suffer, and we tell each other, we remind each other it's worth it. The king is coming. The king is coming. 
it's worth it. So we don't, we don't neglect the assembly of ourselves. We come together each and every Lord's Day to worship our triune God in spirit and in truth, and we do so in community knowing that it's a means that God has ordained for us by which we persevere in the faith. This gathering here this morning is really good for your souls. It's really, really good for you. When the glory of God, to pursue the glory of God is good for you. I don't know if we think about that a lot, right? God's glory, God getting the glory is the best thing to happen for you. And so that should be our chief aim. That's our chief aim when we, when we gather here. That's the chief aim in the way that we serve and we love each other and we love other people. That's the chief aim when we herald the good news of the gospel. That's the chief aim when we repent of our sin. So we don't neglect assembling and reminding ourselves. And then finally, an authentic Christian numbers his or her days. Numbers his or her days. That's the second part of, of verse 25. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? This passage, <clears throat> as I was studying for it, it could have a double meaning. It could refer to the return of Christ, or it could refer to the day that we die. Right? Death and the return of Christ, when the dead in Christ shall rise to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth, is coming. It's coming. I read a book a few years back where the author talked about living in hindsight. And he and his wife, um, he talked about how he and his wife are trying to cultivate this discipline uh, on a daily basis where they think or meditate of, of standing before the Lord. That's the discipline that they're trying to cultivate. And as they stand before the Lord, fully accepted in Christ Jesus, not because of anything that they've done, but because of everything that Christ has accomplished, right? But when they stand before the Lord, fully accepted in Christ Jesus, they... They, they think about that moment and they ask themselves the question, what do I wish I would have spent more time doing? Right? That's what they ask themselves. And I've sat with people uh, dying and I've prayed with them. And every person that I've sat with that's of a sound mind asks themselves this question in some shape, form, or fashion. I wish I would have spent more time doing fill in the blank. And at the root of that question is, is stewardship. It's the question of stewardship. What was I busy doing with the time God graciously allowed me? That's really what they're asking. And only Jesus is the good steward, but his Holy Spirit can, can help us this side of eternity. And, and I don't think that we will come to the end of our lives and regret the following things. I just jotted down some things that I wouldn't regret if I stood before the Lord. Worshiping God daily. Wouldn't regret doing that. Teaching my children the gospel. Sacrificially loving my spouse. Loving and serving my friends and my enemies. Being committed to my local church. Repenting of sin, mortifying sin. Telling others about Jesus. Get real practical here. Turning the TV off more. Right? I wouldn't regret that. Letting go of petty grievances. Laughing more. Asking for forgiveness more. I wouldn't regret that. Caring for widows and orphans. 
making space to be hospitable and kind, assuming the best of others. Those are just some things that I, a first Passover I was thinking, what are things that I, I wouldn't regret filling my time with? And so an authentic Christian numbers his or her days. And the Lord's declared the end from the beginning. He's ordained the day that you die. The Lord knows the day that he'll return. The Father knows, right? And so I want to live with this eternal perspective. And so authentic Christians draw near to God because of the blood of Jesus. They aim to increase their assurance of faith. They have a tender consideration and concern for others. They motivate others toward love and service. They're committed to a local church and they number their days. This is the good life. This is the grass is greener on the other side. And so may the Lord help us to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the superiority of the new covenant, Lord. We thank you for Christ Jesus and what he's accomplished for us, God. We thank you, God, that you, God, you know the, the, the number of hairs on our head because you created us and you know the number of days that we will live, God. And so help us to fill our days with things of eternal significance. And Lord, we're forever grateful that you saved us, that your Holy Spirit preserves us, and that, Lord, one day we will live with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And I pray this in Jesus' name.